And we're back with week number two with our guests in residence for the Good Life Project Roundtable, Susan Piver, author, meditation teacher, and founder of the Open Heart Project, the world's largest online meditation community, and Lodo Rinsler, also meditation teacher, author. I don't know how that all... Somehow we all ended up with meditation teachers and authors for this residency and founder of really cool and fast-growing drop-in meditation center in New York City called Mindful. You can find links to connect with them in the show notes to this show. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Awesome hanging out with Roundtable guests in residence this week, Susan Piver and Lodra Rinsler. This is our second week of their residency. So if you missed the first one, be sure to go back and check it out. Awesome conversations with awesome human beings. So we're going to start off with Lojo today. What's on your mind? So I recently wrapped traveling around and doing a tour for the last book I did called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. I spoke at a lot of self-help conferences. And I think what people wanted me to say is they wanted me to get up on stage and say, here's how you find the one and you have the perfect relationship, right? And I I'm come from a Buddhist background, so I was like, let's pretend that you find someone that you're willing to spend time with. <laughs> At some point, they're going to you might go through a breakup or a divorce, or one of you is going to die. So let's not put our happiness eggs in the external factor basket. Let's like talk about how to love ourselves. And people did not like me. <laughs> they didn't. They weren't into it. So they're like, you're such a downer, man. <laughs> I guess my question is because exactly, I feel like such a downer coming off of this. Is there such a thing as the one? You both are married. Mm. How did you know that you wanted to spend your life with this person that you are spending your life with? Like, is there, I mean, I'm not presuming that you have any sort of perfect relationship. But, I do. Okay. I well, then how did that happen? <laughs> Mine's but, uh, this is my big question. Like, how did you know? Is, the, is there such a thing as the one? And like, how does, what's the day-to-day dynamic of of making sure that you are able to stay in a, in a healthy relationship, whatever that means to you. And never die. And never die. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And have the other person never die. Because <laughs> that's what it's about. Give me the advice that I should have given these people. <laughs> <laughs> so when I speak next time, I won't have anything thrown at me. <laughs> Susan, what are you thinking? Oh, uh, yeah. This, this is my jam. Okay. I love this topic. Yeah. How do you know if someone is the one? It is so mysterious. And I don't know and so intimate and so personal i personally never thought i would get married i i thought i would have relationships but i didn't ever think i would want to be with someone all the time because i don't like that i still don't like that but i've been married for 17 years <laughs> but i was I had a boyfriend my husband and i just really loved him and he, I kept, the question I just kept asking myself was, what do I need to do to deepen this love? What what do I need to do? What can I do to deepen this intimacy? And at one point, and I didn't, I did not want to have children. So I think for some people, that's a real factor. Like if we want to have a family, we should just get this, you know, get this, this thing moving. That wasn't a factor for me. I just thought, the next thing I have to do to deepen this connection is marry this friggin' person. And if I don't, it's just going to start to hmm. move from this deep place up to the surface, and I don't want it to do that. So the sense of, like, go deeper or 
go deeper or like go you can't, home. They, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, and and it it was a combination of things. It was I love this person, but so what? Everyone who's been divorced loved the person they are now divorced uh-huh. from. It was a time in our a time in our lives. It was not, you know, not a young person. And just this feeling of I want to keep engaging with this person. I have no idea why. Is on the list of like oh, I want him to be happy and funny and smart and tall and have a job and a car and it was I mean yeah I had a lot of great qualities but in terms of a person I envision myself being with it was, would not be this person. Hmm. So Duncan's not funny, <laughs> <laughs> but it is this person. But he still only has a car. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So we're good. Like, you're right. Has a job. And a car and speaks English. Those used to be. <laughs> it's a pretty high bar. Right? High bar. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. It's like I think about this sort of the idea of the one true love. And there's something in me, I have no idea if this is legit or not, but there's something in me that wants to believe that any two people trapped on a desert island with no hope of ever being rescued would find a way to make each other their one true love. Mm-hmm. You know, if, but it's almost like, you know, like, the FOMO that comes from living in a world with you know, like zillions of other people that just might be that one true love, yeah. you know, it's, it's almost like it stops you from considering them potentially doing the work, um, investing in yourself and investing in the relationship and on a level that would allow, you know, that sense of true love or really deep and profound lasting love to to flourish and so it's like to me it's like it's like that desert island question you know it's like if the if you knew that this was it for life there was no other option ever and your only other option was either like to find a way to like deepen your relationship and be with this person forever or you're gonna live in solitude um like would you somehow find a way to create that in the other person i don't know well i'm trying not to laugh because that is what marriage is exactly like. Yeah. At some point you find I'm on a desert island with this person. Right. <laughs> and I have to figure out a way to love them. And there's nice palm trees and you know, like nice good fruit, but <laughs> I thought I knew them. But the and and I did. But now as time goes by, I I actually realize I don't know them. Yeah, there's an unfolding. There is, and I think as you were saying that, it was coming to me like the the person becomes your one true love. But they don't start out that way. They start out maybe as someone you are in love with, you love to have sex with, you just feel super attracted to and happy to be with and have fun and can talk or whatever it is you like doing with other people. But the one true love piece emerges and it takes, it takes time. And I think the question of, then this is what I, cause I wrote a book when I was getting married called The Hard Questions you know, a long time ago. Sitting on my shelf. <laughs> because I was so like, how do I know? I, okay, I have a list of 100 questions I would like to ask you. <laughs> he was very It's kind. like the football test in diner. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was sort of the girly version of the football <laughs> test. And I realized when I was writing this that oh, I didn't intend to write it as a book, but I realized as I was asking the questions that just because you love someone does not mean you will love your life together. That those two things are actually not connected. Hmm. And they're love affairs and relationships. And we want our love, we think I'll find the best love affair and then I'll turn it into a relationship. But that doesn't always happen. And we want our relationships to be love affairs. And you think, well, it has to keep being this steamy, wonderful, joyful thing. 
But there are very few that can be both. And so if you ask, is this the one for me to have a love affair with? That's one question. Is this the one for me to make a life with, have a relationship with? That's a different question. And the answer could be yes in both cases, but perhaps. Yeah. And I think it evolves over time also. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I think like over time, you know, like you start to create that. I'm, I'm married. We're going on 19 years now, I guess. And I, I always, I get really nervous whenever I, I talk about this because I, I, I don't want to be held up as like, hey, I'm telling you how to make this work. Sure. You know, like I've got all the, we, we've been asked actually many times to sort of like, would you do a thing on like couples and like, you know, like cultivating great marriage? We're like, you know what? Mm-hmm. On any given day, we're just like, we're not, we're not outside looking in and understanding mm-hmm. how it works. We're just in it, mm-hmm. you know, trying to engage and live and like actually just do it every day. So like, I don't, you know, maybe that, you know, like the year before I die, you know, like mm-hmm. I'll have something to say about, you know, like looking back. But right now we're kind of, we're in it looking out and we're like, we've elevated to the, to the level of, we also were business partners. Yeah. So like we, we live and breathe every single day, all day together. And some people look at us, they're like, oh my God, how, how do you do how that? How do you do that? I mean, is that good? Is that? It's amazing. It's, I remember once hearing you say, it was the sweetest thing. I, I, you said, "I wake up every morning and I and and I look over and I feel like so lucky." I, and I do. I was so beautiful that, yeah. that was. And, and I and I do feel like that way. And we're you know like we're we've been we've been married almost nineteen years and we've been together for twenty something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still I I feel I'm fifty years old and I feel like every day I'm like no. <laughs> What an astonishing blessing to be with this woman on every level. That's so great. Uh, but I can't deconstruct. Like I, I couldn't Does turn she around feel that and way say, about like, you? "I don't know." I hope so. <laughs> okay, just so I hear that, and and take, and so just like one final thought is, and it's it's only every year has gotten better. We've been through big challenges, like every couple that's been through together, like whether it's emotional health relationship. You know, like, and what we found is like every abyss that we wade into has been sometimes really hard, but when we emerge the other side, we are more deeply connected than ever before. And part of that, I think, is work, but part of it is also, I think, honoring the fact that you have to grow as individuals mm-hmm. and honor that individual growth. And if doing that simultaneously keeps you compatible, or even makes you more compatible, that's awesome. But it doesn't always happen that way. So mm-hmm. to a certain extent, part of that, I think, is fortune. Yeah. And that's it's, it's beautiful because I think a lot of people forget to allow the space for the individual growth. And like, what is going on with that person over there? So, but I, I Susan and I gave a talk um, a few weeks ago now. And she had this beautiful example of, yes, I love you and you're wonderful, but then sometimes you're stirring the soup and you're stirring the soup wrong. <laughs> right. I was looking at him. He, literally, I was looking at him stirring the soup and going, you just got that's annoyed. a stupid way to stir <laughs> soup, right? <laughs> Do you have that too, Jonathan? Um, there, yes. Knowing that she'll listen to this? <laughs> yes, and. My answer is yes, and. I absolutely have those moments. I think everybody does. Uh-huh. The cool thing is that through my practice over the years, I've I'm find it easier and easier to see when I'm doing it. And then drop it. To realize it's about me and not them. To realize this is the stupidest thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. And like that's that's like who 
who cares if that, you know, this is like, you're looking for a reason to be pissed off about something that absolutely doesn't matter in any way, shape or form. And very often for me, it's when I'm tired mm. or overworked mm-hmm. or cranky or I haven't meditated or I haven't exercised or like I haven't eaten. And like, so for me, usually I definitely, we all like, I, I feel that moment and I'm, I'm increasingly able to develop the practice of like kind of zooming the lens out, getting a little meta and saying, okay. I'm annoyed here. Um, but what the hell is really going on? Because right. <laughs> <laughs> there's clearly no rational so, basis for me to even be mildly upset about any of this. So I'm like, a, and then you go down my list. Like, did I sleep well? Did I exercise? Am I stressed about this? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, of course, it's all of those. Mm. Um, so it it lets me kind of like dissipate it a little more readily. I love that you thought that was a beautiful story. I did. That's <laughs> a great example, though, because it is, you know. I was giving a talk yesterday and I was like, and, you know, maybe you get annoyed because they never wash the dishes. And my mother was in town. She was in the room. And afterwards she goes, so Adriana doesn't wash the dishes. <laughs> no, no, she does sometimes. Not the just point, a good but, example. Right. <laughs> and but then when you layer that, that level of judgment yeah. like that. Anyway, so shall we rotate around to oh, uh, topic number two? Okay, sure. This topic is based on something I heard you say in a video. And I just watched this video recently. I'm not sure when you made it. I think it's fairly recent. And you said, everybody wants to own the idea. Everybody wants to own the result. I'm paraphrasing. But nobody wants to own the process. And that just, that was brilliant. And that just really, like, that is absolutely true and said in a very pithy and concise way. And I wanted to, that's my topic. Why? Why? Does no one want to own the process? And... How, why? I guess I'll just say, why is that, do you think? What's that about? It's a really good question. Just off the top of my head, you know, I, I, as you guys both know, I started something called Mindful, which is a drop-in meditation studio. Sort of the first of its type here in New York, where you can just drop in for a half hour, 45 minutes, do meditation class. Every day we have people come in and be like, this is a great idea. This is it's beautifully executed. It's a lovely space. The teachers are top notch. Like it's it's quote unquote done right, you know. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a great place. And I'm sitting here looking at them, being like, "Are you crazy? <laughs> this is not an established business. We're four months old. It's a startup. It's constantly in evolution. Like you don't like. There's an outward face of like, look how nice this space is. Look at how wonderful my meditation class was. And behind the scenes, I'm sitting here being like. Are we, I mean, we're not making any money on books. That's not a good thing, right? I guess we we always have to, like, keep the lights on. And in order to keep the lights on, we have to make money. Like, there's just, like, a whole process around how to run a business that, you know, I'm a simple meditation teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, one we have wonderful uh, staff who helps direct me, essentially, even though I'm one of the founders, to figuring out how to run a business and what that process is like. But it's sometimes brutal sometimes mm-hmm. causes me stress mm-hmm. and i i just think even that dichotomy of like oh this is a beautiful image you know i love good life project i love being part of the community and not necessarily seeing the work that goes behind the scenes with jonathan and like that process is brutal but it makes for the better baby you know, let, let me just put the, this in different context. I was disappointed to see the other day that a meditation teacher I admire chose to have a ghostwriter for their book. Mm. 
And I thought, writing the book is the only way that I actually process the material. Mm. Which I think it was John Didion who said, I don't know what I think about something until I write about it. And that's always been my process. Like, mm. I couldn't give a talk on a certain topic until I, like, sat down and slaved over writing about it. And that process made it genuine for mm. me. And I thought, oh, I, maybe it's different for this person. I mm -hmm. shouldn't judge them for getting a ghostwriter. But I thought, the process is so wonderful. And you learn so much. The act of starting a business is pulverizing me and making me a better human being. So I, I don't talk about that much. But I, I'm sitting here in response to the question, what's coming up for me is, why don't I? I have no idea. Mm. Why don't I talk about that behind-the-scenes stuff? Yeah, and there, there's a, there's actually a conference called FailCon. I don't know if it still goes on, where like everyone comes, like, you know, most tech entrepreneur and entrepreneurial you know conferences, it's all about the successes. And um, and this is all about, like, massive fail, like, sh people sharing their failures along the way. It's funny, like, when I created that video, pretty much everything I do, and I, maybe you guys are the same way when you write, when you make stuff, it's, I'm, I'm talking to myself sure. for, for the most part. And I've, I've spent so much time. Number one, I'm not a process-driven person. Mm -hmm. My orientation is very much outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and so I endure the process because I want what's on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. But for me, I still haven't figured out how to turn the process side of it into as much joy as possible. You know, I, I question, like, what is it that makes me suffer so much with process? And what is it that makes the process of doing something awesome for so many people so unseemly that they just, they don't want to, they want to wa walk in and actually, you know, everyone wants, and this is funny, like we you know, had experience in the restaurant industry. And so I know private bars and restaurants. Yeah. And it's, so many people want to own restaurants, but they really don't want to own restaurants. There are so many people that I've talked to where they would love to walk into their restaurant <laughs> on, a, on a Friday yeah. night and see a hundred people reveling and drinking right. wine and having delicious Stopping food and the, the conversation and, and the music is just so and the lighting is fantastic. And they come through the front doors and everyone looks and says, you're here. <laughs> this is this is her restaurant. This Please come to that. And you're wandering around the tables and <laughs> saying and bashing. Asking in the glory of having this fantastic thing, you know. Now and, I want to own a restaurant. And then, and then <laughs> you know, after an hour of just basking and rotating and being adored, you go home and you read a book and hang out <laughs> with your family and, and then go to bed at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and you're like, the reality of the restaurant industry is horrible. It's a 24 seven. It is job. a brutal, brutal industry, you know, where like the work that you have to do to make it seem like everything is effortless and wonderful in the front of the house is like, you know, like, evil you know like slightly above pure evil um and it's it's a hard 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 brutal brutal industry almost all restaurants fail very quickly and even the ones that succeed it's brutal so everyone wants to be the owner and the one who created this amazing thing um and and i experience this with entrepreneurs too everyone wants to be the one that created this company or this product or this brand or this movie or this wrote this book and then with having no understanding of the crazy painful levels of sustained uncertainty, the crazy painful levels of sustained complexity that it actually takes to get to that point of outcome. And that's why I created that video. That's why I sort of like wrote that whole thing because I'd had so many conversations. I don't love that process myself. 
even though I've learned to like get as okay as I can with it because I know that it's necessary to get to the place I want to get and create what I want to create. But there's so much delusion in the world around the fact that you do have to embrace huge levels of sustained uncertainty and complexity very often to get to that place. And it's kind of like it was like a call to action to say like, you know, yes, there was, there's was going to be an elevated level of suck in your life, um, potentially for a long period of time, along with an elevated level of awe and amazement and connection and camaraderie and beauty and grace, you know, and that's part of the process. And so when, when most people actually understand what it really takes to get from point A to point B, if they understood that, they actually wouldn't do it. I agree. And in yeah. fact, I remember reading a study a couple of years back that asked um, a bunch of successful entrepreneurs, if they had known what it would actually take to get there you know, on the day that it started, would they have done it? And a large percentage said no. You know, so it's all, in, all, mm. in a weird way, it's almost good that you don't know how hard it's <laughs> going to be coming into it. It's true. But it, at the same time, you should have some sense so that you're steeled for when it does get that hard because it will. Yeah. I so, feel like many of these things, you know, yes, business, but I can't speak from personal experience on this one, but like I imagine pregnancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I imagine, and I know this one, like a long meditation retreat, like, wow, you're going on a long meditation retreat. That sounds so wonderful. So and, peaceful. and then you're there <laughs> and you fucking hate everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's not relaxing. The food isn't good and mm-hmm. it's raining and you've got cold and someone's sniffling right next to you and it's gross. And, and, I mean, at the end, you're like, wow, that was so wonderfully transformative. So it reminds me more of that. I can't speak to the experience of of pregnancy and childbirth, but same sort of thing. Like at the end, you're like, great. And then almost, we almost need to like slice that part of our memory out so that we could go do it again. Like the process part, we're like, meh. People who have more than for- one child forget the pain of labor. Yeah. Not literally, but it's the same with writing a book, which we've all done. If so, you know, people think, oh, you wrote a book. Do you just, you sort of sit in your room and you contemplate, and you think about life and contemplate things and jot them down. And there's classical music playing in the background. I, I, I actually smoke a pipe while I'm doing it. Too. I, I have a <laughs> joke. I actually have a tobacco pipe. I'm the only That's man hilarious. in his 30s that owns a tobacco pipe. Yes. Do you have a blazer with elbow pads? Right. Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> Stop making fun of me. I have two of them. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Well, as you're talking, here's what is coming to my mind, and it is the three kayas hmm. in Buddhist thought. And this is my understanding of it, Lodra. Please add what you think. All phenomena are said to arise simultaneously in three realms. The first realm is the Dharmakaya, or the, the ultimate realm, where there is no division between anything. Everything that is occurring is occurring there. Things are also occurring in the nirmanakaya, the form realm, the manifest realm, where whatever was happening in the ether- you know, in the ephemeral realm takes form. Like, we're sitting here, here's my iPhone, this is a mic, that's the nirmanakaya. In between is the sambhogakaya, or the, it's called the desire realm. It's the realm of communication, of music, of symbol, of semiotics. And it's between the Dharmakaya and the Nirmanakaya. And it's occurring to me that process is inhabiting the Sambhogakaya, the world of semiotics, mm. and the being able to the read. The causes and conditions coming together. Exactly. Yeah. And being able to read and 
you have to like be in perpetual state of uncertainty because the minute you think you know, then you're missing something. And so I think to not prefer, some people prefer the Dharmakaya, they want to be in space. Some people prefer the Nirmanakaya, I just want to see the result. You know, the Dharmakaya maybe is associated with inspiration. But very few people sort of like to be in the middle. But you have to be in all, all three, everything's happening in all three realms at one time. So I think process is, is not choosing between those, the idea, the process, and the result, but navigating continually between mm-hmm. those three points, seeing it as one continuum. Mm-hmm. When, does that I sound right that. to you? No, I do. I do. And particularly, you know, I use the example of writing a book. I think that's the case. It's, it's operating in, you're sitting there physically typing away, but there's also a lot of other things going on. Something is coming before from somewhere. During, yeah, yeah. Especially writing a book, it's kind of it's all you're like almost flipping violently between the three on a nonstop basis. It's true. And don't you look yeah. at what you wrote and go, "Who? What? Who there, wrote that?" There, yeah, there are moments where I've like literally like the next day I'm like, "Where'd what? that come from?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said that. Yeah, I know. Someone favorite, in the Dharmakaya said it. Huh. My favorite. You know, I've written a couple of books now, and someone will say, "You know, I read that thing in your book," and when you said X, Y, and Z, and I will look at them and I'll say, I don't think I ever wrote that. <laughs> I've had that same conversation. <laughs> Me too. Like, oh, that's I'm glad it was helpful. I like person who wrote that. It sounds much more helpful than I am. I thought I thought it at one point, but I didn't realize it was in print anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty interesting. So why don't we, uh, why don't we circle around to our uh, final topic of the day? So I was actually going to do this separately just as a short and sweet riff, but I'm actually going to... Um, do this with you guys here because I'm. I think you're probably going to have much better insight than me, and I would love to tap your wisdom on it. So this was something that came in from one of our listeners who asked, "How do you feel with people who don't don't like you?" And this is in parentheses, platonically. It's the one thing I'm not sure I could find. And she was referencing a conversation I had with Brene Brown in Brene's work. Um, Like many organizations, I don't have a choice who I can be around or not. And it sucks to know that they don't like you. You can just tell. Mm -hmm. Just by body language, voice tone, one can tell. I'm a pretty shy and awkward gal. How do you deal with social rejection in the workplace? I'm a very sensitive person and I'm a feeler over anything else. I would love to get your opinion. Mm -hmm. And I would love to get both of your sense on this. Well, I've never met anyone that doesn't like me, so I don't really have this. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you probably heard of other people from that happens yeah. too, so. Something about once a Coming year. Coming from his throne of denial. <laughs> right? yes, exactly. There's, it's, I mean, I live in a weird world. It, it takes a very particular type of troll <laughs> to clown Buddhist authors. <laughs> like really dedicated memes and things like that. But once a year, someone emerges and I find myself in good company. You know, it's like, oh, someone does a really disrespectful clown campaign against me, but also like Sharon Salzberg and maybe Thich Nhat Hanh or someone like really. <laughs> it's like this. So my takeaway at this point is like, wow, what great company mm-hmm. I'm in. And I always reflect on my sister wrote a book. Um, it came out about 10 years ago and it was right when it came out and I was sitting in her kitchen and she pulled up Amazon reviews, oh, which is, you know, right. Yeah. I, do we that. all know this sort of like the what the highs and lows of amazon reviews and this woman wrote you know this woman wrote this book and it's a horrible book just meant for people like her and she's a white stuck up skinny bitch who graduated from duke and you know like all these really things and at the end 
my sister looked at me and goes, it's so nice that she thought I was skinny. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, I mean, there's something about not taking things so personally and having a sense of humor that it's developed over time. And I've had, I've really struggled with it, to be honest. I don't want to just be like, oh, this is my objective view, like how I work with it. I've struggled with this for years of like, oh, you don't like me or you don't like what I do. Um, and realizing that's not always about me. Sometimes it might be a little bit about me, but often it's about that person and their positionality. And maybe they wish they had done something like this, or maybe they come from a very different point of view and they're easily offended. And they probably go through life easily offended by many things. You know, I once again, to clown a Buddhist author, it's very particular. Like he must be pissed off by everything, <laughs> you know? So that's my personal take to not just consider why doesn't this person like me, but like what is going on with this person? And maybe trying to develop some sense of empathy or mm. at the very least sympathy for someone who's clearly having a hard time. But that's just my takeaway. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I think if the reader, the, the writer is saying, I can feel that people don't like me and it hurts me. And, you know, if someone steps up and says, I don't like you, then you can engage in some way. But when you feel this kind of rejection, I understand what, what she is, she, yeah. what she means. It's very painful. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, the first and only thing you can do is, I mean, experience that sadness without, as you were mentioning earlier, the storyline connected mm-hmm. to that sadness, mm-hmm. which is these people don't like me because I'm not good enough or because I'm not like them or because I didn't say this or because I didn't do that. But instead to feel that ping, that knife cut, that whatever it feels like to you and, uh, you know, allow it. And if you focus on the story, this means this about me and I have to change and nobody likes me, then you're, it's a one-way ticket to Palookaville. You're never coming back from that. But if you can stay with your heart's experience, somehow it creates a kind of intimacy between you and the situation you're in, as opposed to a remove. And then there is some possibility of transformation. But without that then it just becomes a, a fight. And, you know, I kind of relate to that question. I, I, I felt that a lot in my life. Like the two people are talking and I say something and they both look at me and then start talking to each other again, that, that vibe. I'm somehow mm-hmm. familiar with that. And you just are turned back on your own inner world over and over and over again. And that's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you feel better when your feelings are hurt. But some people have no choice but to inhabit their inner realm. And I guess the final thing I would say is, you know, the traditional practice of loving kindness is really, really useful here. When you feel rejected, when you feel pain, when you feel that you don't fit in, not to do loving kindness for the people that have hurt you, but to do it for yourself, to just wish yourself well in this sort of formal way. And in the Open Heart Project, my online, because I started a meditation community too, but it's in the cloud. There's a lot of focus on that, trying to 
I, I just find constantly that, and I'm sure you do too, with anyone who wants to meditate, they sort of come to it with some sense of inadequacy. Yeah. And finding a way to meet that. I'm sure in your work, in all, all three of us, is, is sort of paramount. So anyway, that's, that's what I would say. What do you think? I want to hear your riff. No, I didn't actually create the riff yet. I was just <laughs> waiting, waiting for you guys to do it for me. I totally agree with what you guys are saying. I, you know, my sense is that dissociating the story is a huge part of it, you know, because it's very often it's like the pain is not just like they don't like me, but it's like they don't like me because of this, uh, which may be completely differently. A lot of times, you know, they just, A, I think, and then also sort of like, Susan, what you were saying is like, rather than saying, oh, no, I'm just wrong. They actually really like me, but they're just busy. Maybe they actually don't like you. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's kind of like, I think a lot of, you know, like pop psychology is like, no, it's just, you know, they really do like you. There's no reason for them not to like you. It's like, maybe they actually don't like you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're just not their people. And then it's like, and that's actually okay. And because they're not your people. Right. You know, and, you know, and then, and then challenges, you know, um, you know, this wonderful listener who shared this and wrote in, you said, well, what if you're working with these people and you, you're, you're like the way that you earn your living makes it so that you're surrounded by them every day. Like, how do you get comfortable with the fact that you're now like, you can't just walk away and choose a different set of friends because these, these are people that are just, somebody else has put them in your orbit and, and, and less than until you actually choose to leave that professional scenario, you know, like they're going to be in your orbit. Like, how do you just get okay with that? And I think that, you know, I don't know if I have a really good answer to that other than just dissociating the story. Mm-hmm. knowing that like they may just be busy or they, you just may genuinely be different people with different interests engaging you know socially in different ways and you just kind of like you know do what you can to to be with that and then to I don't know how you just let that go yeah I don't know I don't have a really good answer for just be okay it was funny because um she referenced my conversation with Brene and Brene you know who's has you know like now developed the massive public um, persona. And we all know, like going along with that, like Lojo, like what you were saying about, you know, the Amazon reviews and YouTube comments are like the worst on the planet. You know, they're sort of replaced <laughs> dig comments after. And Brene and I talked about this in, in our conversation. And what she essentially said to me, she's like, you know, she's like, I have no intake of anything anybody says who is not also mm-hmm. at the moment in, in the, the arena, arena. Yeah. in the way that I am. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also sometimes a powerful thing because sometimes you'll get pushback or you'll get like, you know, senses of dislike. But sometimes, you know, like if you kind of like zoom the lens and ask, well, is it because this person is in some way, um, like I'm engaging in something, I'm full contact and um, there's stuff that's happening. And there's, there's um, you know, the people who I'm sensing this from are not. So I'm not, I'm not sure I understand what she means. There should no intake meaning I don't I don't give it credence. I don't let it touch me. I don't because what? they're not act. I love this term in the arena because it's like to go back to what we were talking about with process. It's you're struggling. You're fighting it out. You're mm-hmm. figuring this stuff out, and it's so easy from someone up in the stand, yeah, to throw a barb at you, right? right? Mm-hmm. So like, why let that person in the stands? Actually, mm-hmm. but if someone's actually in the arena struggling as well. That somehow, in my own experience, bears more credence. So in the same way that, like, someone who's, you know, a very traditional meditation practitioner in middle of nowhere, Iowa, 
says, this guy's books, I don't like them or whatever. It doesn't affect me as much as Susan Piver, who has done similar work, saying, I don't really like it. Susan could have the slightest critique of my work, and I would crumble underneath that <laughs> compared to whatever massive thing you someone who's not in the yeah. arena <laughs> would so say. Right I think I, and I really love that idea. Yeah, it's funny. I recently had a conversation with Nancy Duarte and Patty Sanchez, and Nancy runs an eponymous firm called Duarte, which is the world's top presentation design firm, Silicon Valley, and Patty's her her chief strategy person, they just wrote a book and they spent like years and years and like, and they had this thing and they gave it to a confidant who they really trusted their opinion. And then they literally like had booked a trip to go to Carmel and celebrate. They finally finished the manuscript and sort of like on their way down, they heard back from this person. Nancy just shared this story on a recent uh, episode. The woman basically said, I would have expected more. (gasps) (laughs) Did they turn around? They ended up having a basically a, effectively a manuscript burning party in Carmel and started from zero. Wow! So, and and was she was the crit- critique accurate? Yeah, they, and they believe so. Yeah, they're that's like awesome. you know what that's that is awesome. That's that's it. Awesome. So because that person they believe to be in the arena, mm-hmm. and they're like this person is somebody who needs to be listening to. So sometimes also I think it's being able to delineate. Who's actually like in there? Who's bearing their heart and soul? Who's doing the work? Who's like going to that raw, vulnerable place? Mm-hmm. Is that something which um, makes sense to actually consider? And um, is there just hard data? Is there information some way in this engagement that I find really uncomfortable that is that I should be processing mm-hmm. because, you know, it's becoming a pattern which moves beyond here? Or is it literally just... I live in the world differently. I operate differently than this person does. We're not the same people. They don't have to like me. I don't like them. Mm-hmm. And, and we can kind of coexist and yeah. just be okay with that. Unless you make a comment on my blog post. <laughs> I've been busted. It, I, I do engage those. Yeah. And I don't, I, everything comes into moderation. I don't un, not publish the things that are mean, it, unless it's just crude and then I don't publish it. But if it's, I think you're stupid and, you know, which I get, I actually get from time to time when I write things about compassion for enemies, that Mm, makes people very, very upset. And people will give me like, like, like throwaway comments, like you're stupid or, or, you know, you're (laughs) one of my favorite ones was, uh, you're just some like privileged white person. They didn't say skinny, but some privileged white person who probably uses an apple. (laughs) computer it's like well uh you know weird i'm like if you put i don't read amazon reviews or youtube things if you put stuff there that's your problem but if you come in my house and you diss me then that we're gonna have a conversation so i used to offer the, the open heart project meditation instruction for free and i still offer it for free but there's another uh, subscriber version that's not free and many people got very upset with me when i started charging and not many, but enough so that it, it, that I get emails and comments and I would engage each one. I'm curious how you guys do it, but I would say the truth. It hurts me that you feel this way. It's not, I don't see myself that way. Your words have impact on me. And if this isn't for you, it's not for you, but I want you to know this hurt me. And every time, some sort of actual dialogue has occurred where the person has come back to me and said, except for one person, the person has come back to me and said something like, I'm hurt too. Mm. I can't afford this. Or I thought you were, you know, someone else lied to me and blah, blah, blah. With one exception. And the one exception said, 
oh, just go cry with your friends, Deepak and Oprah. <laughs> but other than that, anyway. We all know that Oprah doesn't cry. Yeah, and, and I'll just call her when I'm upset anyway. So I just, I know maybe this is a little off topic, but that's someone not liking me. And I feel that I should engage. Yeah. What, what do you guys think? Maybe that's a different yeah, topic. Yeah, I, I engaged a lot more in the beginning, mm-hmm. and now I pretty much don't ever engage. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a... If there's a seat, if I can feel pain in the comment and I, I think it can lead to a dialogue that right. will actually help, uh-huh. I will, but I don't do that very often anymore. And in fact, most people that I know that started in the world of blogging back when I did uh-huh. have now all shut off their comments because it's just, it's too much. Yeah. Um, so it just becomes uh, another place to, uh, they don't want to actually engage on that level. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Do you have one final thought on this before we wrap? Only that when it can't, when it, like me blogging, I completely agree. When someone actually takes the time to read one of my books, like 60,000 words I sat down and wrote and slaved over, and they actually read it, and then they have feedback or questions or whatever. With the moment that my first book came out, I said, I'm going to commit to writing every single person back that emails me about this book. And thus far, I've held to it, and I hope I continue to. Because I think what if they actually have a significant commitment hours of thinking about what I'm putting out there and then have any sort of response, I'm going to try and get back to them. That's my only Mm -hmm. caveat to that. Cool. So I've been hanging out and we've been hanging out this week with guests in residence, Lojo Rinsler and Susan Piver. They were with us last week. If you haven't listened to that, go check it out. And we'll be here with uh, one final week next week too. And uh, Lojo, where can people find you? LodraRinsler.com or on social media. It's very easy when you have the name Lodra Rinsler to just, <laughs> if you Google that, you'll find me. <laughs> and it's R-I-N-Z-L-E-R. Yeah, right? you got right. it. And Susan? At my website, SusanPiper.com, or you can just Google The Open Heart Project. Yeah, awesome. Right. Thank you, guys. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project.